Hello, everyone, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I learn about something I'm interested in, and then I assume all of you will be interested in it, too, so I can teach it to you. It's a pretty good assumption. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. I mean, you say that, but... I, I am Everett, though. <laughs> no. I just didn't want to interrupt you before. Okay. I was mentioning the part where, you know, it's a good assumption. Everyone's going to be interested in everything I'm interested in. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure that's a good assumption, but... A it's plausible not, one. It's not like if you miss an episode of our podcast, you've missed anything. There's no storyline here. That's no true. plot you're going to miss out on. There's you no see one and you're like, themes. that's boring. You can just skip that episode. It's true. That's what's cool about it. So you heard it here first. You have permission. I don't recommend it. No, of course not. I recommend listening to all the episodes. Yep. Um, just because I think it's cool when I get to see the little map on the podcast, you know, network thing that shows me where people listen from. Yeah. I'm so excited every time I look at the map. Of course. It is one of the most fun parts. Thank you, everyone from around the world for listening to me talk about things I like. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, so this episode... Mm-hmm was inspired by uh, a bunch of new research that came out this summer, um, specifically about octopus nurseries, which the media so cleverly yes. dubbed octopus gardens. Good, so you might good have, reference. You might have seen some articles this summer about octopus gardens. Um, and Ringo didn't write the articles. Uh, no, he did not. And it probably wasn't an AI powered by the Beatles either. <laughs> it probably probably not. These probably. are actual researchers and scientists. Um, no, it's the media. Mm. It's the media summing up the researchers' articles that are Sorry. coming up with the titles Octopus Garden. That's what I meant. Okay, researchers yes. are saying Octopus Nurseries. <laughs> okay. Well. Um, it was very hard um, not to make obvious uh, Beatles slash Ringo puns all throughout the um, don't worry, I got your back. So even the ones I do make are hopefully a little more clever. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll see, though. We'll find out. <laughs> well, how about you teach me something? All right. I think it's very important to everyone, or just to me, to begin by clearing up the proper plural of the word octopus. Hmm. Octopusi. Octopuses. Yeah, that Octopods. One. Octopodes? I mean, that's Octoplural? how you... plural. <laughs> um, okay, fair enough. You've covered a whole range of options. Just giving you options, um, yeah. So, the standard pluralized form in English is octopuses. Okay. I will be saying octopuses, unfortunately. Because that's not actually the one I find most fun to say. Which um, one's the most fun? Okay, well, let, let, me, just, let me just get down to it here. Sure. Because uh, now we're going to get into... Not fun grammar. Okay. So, octopi is something you've probably heard when you were, like, growing up and people trying to sound smart or something said octopi. Yeah. Um, so, that wrongly assumes that that's a Latin second declension U.S. noun. <sighs> which you Such would decline by changing the U.S. ending to an I. Um, but in either Greek or Latin, it's a third declension noun. And as a person that took Latin... I don't remember what that means. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just Fair like, enough. you know how like you're learning French, for instance, and you're like, this is how you decline an RE verb. This is how you yeah. decline an E, whatever. But I just for, I just forget what first, second, and third declension mean. It's just, you know, different endings. Different endings. Um, so 
historically, we have also, people have also used the ancient Greek plural, which would be octopodes. I've heard that one. And I find octopodes most fun to say. And also, then I feel like clever for being like, it's a Greek word, everybody. Yeah. Um, so just because I looked this up, I'm going to tell you all, the first plural to commonly appear in English language is octopi in the early 19th century, followed by octopuses in the late 19th century. Um, and the, the Greek one we is, is contemporary. We haven't used it until recently. Um, but here's the thing, is that people that are into grammar, which is not me, even though I feel like I'm supposed to be by my uh, sure. uh, you know, profession, whatever. I'm not, though. Um, they, there's like two camps that fight with each other about grammar. Ooh. Two main camps, okay? So there are descriptivists and uh, prescriptivists. So a descriptivist is like, okay, if people actually use language this way, then it just goes in the dictionary. This is how, you know, I, I don't sure. care if this word doesn't mean anything now it does because everyone uses it that way. Yeah. Like how we, you know, I'll give you an example in a second. A prescriptivist is like, you need to follow the rules. Sure. This is wrong. So you can't use it even though it's the only way people use it now. So like, for example, you know, the word decimate. Right. And how people use decimate to mean like just destroy everything. Yeah. When actually, it, you know, as the prefix des would uh, suggest, it's to reduce, reduce by 10%. Yeah. Um, a descriptivist would be like, yeah, but people don't use it like that anymore. So the dictionary should reflect what it actually means now. Right. And a prescriptivist would be like, but this you're wrong. It yeah. So it should, you should just start using it right. Um, they also fight about, you know, uh, what's, what's that one? Um, irregardless versus regardless. <laughs> right. They mean the same thing, but a, a descriptivist would tell you it doesn't matter. That's not how people use it. Or, you know, the word literally. <laughs> Mm -hmm. literally when when that's the opposite of what you mean anyways so what i'm trying to say is that um descriptivist dictionaries include octopodes as a conceivable but like valid plural okay but a prescriptivist dictionary really only has uh like octopuses and it says octopi is just wrong and um <laughs> This is the entry that I like. Fowler's modern English usage states the only acceptable plural is octopuses because octopi is misconceived and octopodes is pedantic. <laughs> Which is um, actually the reason I decided not to use octopodes in this episode because I don't want to be pedantic, but I sure. like the word. Um, yeah. So the Oxford English Dictionary, which obviously is the best dictionary. Obviously. For English because they're, it's from England. <laughs> yeah. Um, says octopodes is rare and octopi is based on a misunderstanding. So, you know. Okay. Well, if well. Oxford says so. Okay. I like to start biology episodes with taxonomy, as you may know if you've listened to my podcast. I've, I've noticed this trend before. Our podcast. I'm sorry. It's I'm okay. stealing it from you. Uh, I've noticed this trend in our podcast then. Um... I just think it's helpful to know what's related to to what and in, in what way. And also then I can kind of talk about other animals that aren't just the one I'm talking about. Shoehorn in some rabbit holes. Yeah. Sure. Rabbit holes. That's a new one. Is it a new one? I don't think I've ever heard that. Really? Go down a rabbit hole? Oh, maybe I have. Like from Alice in Wonderland? Yeah. Okay. Never mind. I get that. Um. So, phylum. 
we're, we're going to, you know, classify things starting at the, t- not the real top, because no one cares. They're in Kingdom Animalia. Everyone knows that. Yeah. <laughs> Phylum, mollusca, which, yeah, they're mollusks. mollusks. They are hmm. mollusks. So they are related to clams. Obviously. They're certainly not like clams. Oh. Not, talking about not the same very creature? much like clams. <laughs> um, they're in class Cephalopoda, uh, head foot. They are head feet. That's what they are. Sure. They're head feet. Um, there's like 800 species so far in Cephalopoda. Maybe. I don't know. There's so many. This is one of those groups of animals that just has so many undiscovered or discovered but not named or described or maybe we've described three of the same thing and we thought they're all different. Who knows? Sure. Um, so they're called head foot because the foot of a mollusk is one of the biggest uh, most important elements of it. Like, for example, another type of mollusk is a gastropod, which is a stomach foot, like mm. a, a yeah. snail or... Yeah, anyways. Um, so in this case, the foot is modified to form the arms and the siphon. Okay. Um, so in cephalopoda, we have nautiloids. And those are the only cephalopods, the only extant cephalopods with an external shell. Because obviously in the extinct ones, we've got lots like, you know, most commonly known as the ammonites. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which is what Ammonite Pokemon is based on, by the way, everyone. (laughs) Plus, I mean, that's a fairly common uh, fossil to see, especially in like books and and Exactly, because it had an external shell. So that fossilized pretty well, that shell. Well, and it's known for being that like shiny kind of rainbow color. It's just like popular. Is Ammonite a shiny rainbow color? I thought it was. Or I'm thinking about something else. I just know it's a cone-shaped shell. Okay. Cone-shaped. No, I'm thinking of a spiral one. Well, like, 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 it's like a... Okay. No, not okay. the same spiral. Okay. I might be talking about a different one now. I'll show you a picture after the podcast. Great. Ignore no what worries. I was saying. Okay. Um, so they are like the simplest form right now of a cephalopod. They don't have an ink sac. You know, they have a lensless eye. They have like 80 to 90 tentacles. They live in just the outside portion of their shell, which I think is interesting because they have a big like curled up shell but they only live in the very outside part of it um so nautiloids only live in the indo-pacific okay uh then more closely related we've got the cuttlefish which does have a cuttle bone which is where the shell has been reduced to in an interior cuttle bone yeah um which they use to regulate buoyancy and they have like a special pocket they can tuck all of their tentacles into hmm. convenient yeah um then we have squids we're much more closely related to an octopus, sure. and um, they have an internal uncalcified shell. Eight arms, two tentacles, and I was curious what the difference between an arm and a tentacle is, but forgot to look that up because it's about octopuses and not squids. Mm, I don't point. have time for this, yes. Um, okay, then we have the order Octopoda. Eight arms, no tentacles, may or may not have an internal shell. Um, quick facts about octopuses. There are three to four hundred species of them with big question marks all over my notes because who knows? Okay. You'll get a different estimate everywhere you look and you'll get an estimate of, and there's 50 unclassified ones or, and, you know, we haven't even begun to explore the deep sea. And since most octopuses live on the ocean bed, not swimming around. Right. There's probably a time we just don't know about yet. Uh, Makes sense. Yeah. Um, so for the most part, they're solitary, but we'll get into that later because not always. And also we might be wrong. Who knows? Right. <laughs> um, so they live in like dens. They build from rocks. Sometimes they pull shells over themselves as their den. 
Some make a door for their den with, you know, rocks. And I think that's cute. Yeah. Uh, the smallest octopus is the star sucker pygmy octopus, which is also in the Indo-Pacific Ocean. Um, they get to a maximum of about two and a half centimeters long. So that's an inch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they weigh about the same as a raisin. Zero point, well, one gram, 0.04 ounces. Um, so their bodies are, are pretty light in general then. They are so tiny. Yeah. I don't know how anyone ever found them in the first place. Okay. <laughs> um, they also have the shortest lifespan, we think, which is around six months. Mm-hmm. Honorable mentions, though, go to the male blanket octopuses and the male paper nautilus. So a female blanket octopus grows to about two meters. Uh, and the males are about the size of a walnut. That's a little different. They're about 2.3 centimeters. They're not the smallest, though, because just the male is small. Right. Um, so they can literally fit inside the pupil of the female octopus. Sure. I mean, I don't think they go in there, though. That would be weird. Yeah. Um, and then, paper nautilus is the other one I said. They are very, very cool. So they aren't nautiluses. Um, they're called that because they have a paper thin, um, kind of translucent shell. Okay. So, like, and it's external. Uh, they're also called Argonauts. Hmm. And that's cool. I really recommend looking at the picture. They're very cool looking. Um, so, <laughs> the males don't get to have a shell though. Too bad. They, uh, so the females grow about 38 centimeters, and the males are right around that one inch mark as well, two and a half centimeters. Yeah, they don't get a shell. They don't, you know. I'm assuming if, if there's that type of, you know, sexual dimorphism, 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 that one, uh, and that the males are so small that they're primarily what short lived, like sperm donors, basically. Yeah, that's all they're good for. Yeah, okay. Why do more than that? If, if you're good at that, Natural then, selection yeah. states all you got to do is get your genes on to the next generation. So right. why do more than that? Um, the biggest octopus you probably know. Hmm. Jimmy. <laughs> no. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know an octopus named Jimmy. It's the giant Pacific octopus, shockingly. Um, Enterooctopus dolphini. And um, it's... Who knows how big it is? There's conflicting reports because some are verified and some are unverified and some are sure. fished and some are caught by scientists. I don't know. So the average, we think the average is about 16 feet Wow. Um, wow. from the top of its body to the tip of its arms. Okay. And uh, like 70 to 110 pounds. That's big. Very um, big. It grows biggest when it lives in colder waters. Oh. In, okay. the, in the North Pacific, for example. Um, smaller in the in the warmer places. So there's one specimen. Let's get back to metric units here because then I can understand things better. That was apparently 272 kilograms. This is at 600 pounds. Whoa. Um, with okay. the arm span of 9 meters or 30 feet. But this is the one that's unverified. Hmm. And so... And it, it has this question one like taking down ships and that type of thing. Yeah, that's the thing is this seems more like something Pliny would say. Then. There'd be monsters out there kind of <laughs> This is the Kraken. Yeah. Um, so the runner up though is the seven arm octopus. That sounds like a septopus. <laughs> Halifron <laughs> Atlanticus. Um, 
that I stop reading my notes. Okay. Um, the largest one recorded is 61 kilograms. So like 130 pounds. And they estimated its mass at about 75 kilograms. So like 165 pounds. Okay. Um, so here's my next note. The seven armed octopus, also known as the blob octopus or the septopus, hmm. is called that, um, because the males keep their specially modified sex arm called the hectocotylus. Okay. All coiled up in a sack beneath their right eye. Okay, but so they still have And we all know we eighth... only do science on males. We all I'm we all sure. know that this is a problem. So, yeah. you know, yes, they do have eight arms. It's a misnomer. Yeah. You know how people name things just well, sure, all willy-nilly before they know anything. And, yeah, I'm sure that the first observations are that, oh, look, they only have seven. Um, and they have really thick gelatinous tissue. So that's the blob octopus part. So okay. it was kind of hard to see that last arm. But yeah, it has eight arms. Okay. Um, and I will get back to the hectocotylus thing later. I don't remember oh, what that, that was. Oh, that was the sex arm thing. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll get back to that. We're going to talk all about reproduction later. hmm So, you might know octopuses for their kind of cool, complex behaviors. Yeah. There's a lot of stories about, um, about that. They can open clamshells and they can maneuver objects like coconuts, um, dismantle filtration systems in their aquarium tanks, mm-hmm. like all that kind of thing. Um, they are the only known tool users in invertebrates. So cool. Yeah. Um, apparently they can also develop opinions about people. There's a story about one that, um, was just pretty docile around everyone, except for this one keeper who they decided he really didn't like because anytime that keeper came close, he would squirt water down the back of this one guy, but never to anyone else. So they decided he doesn't like that one. Um, Or really likes that one. Yeah. Another would just shoot jets of water at different lights to cause commotion when sure. it felt like it. Yeah. Good idea. So those are the quick facts. Let's get down to the details now. The slow facts. I suppose you could say that. Yeah. Uh, what do octopuses eat? Hmm. Well, they're they're carnivores. Fish, right? Yeah. Not really. Clams and yeah, they mollusks? they they mostly yes they they mostly feed on other mollusks. Hmm. Uh, and. A big part of their diet are decapods, crabs, okay. uh, a lot of crabs, shrimps. Sure. Those types of things are their main diets. Um, so, yeah, no, they definitely eat other squids and octopuses. Okay. Um, scientists uh, have known for a long time octopuses use their beaks to drill into a shell, like a clam shell. Yep. Um, but no one was really sure how they went about the killing part of killing their prey. Um, so, to be clear, an octopus's beak... It, it, it is it is beak. It's like a, a sharp radula. Anyways, it's on their underside in the middle of all their arms. That's where the octopus's mouth is. It's not like on their face under their eyes. Like they're always drawn as a cartoon. cartoon. Yeah, of course. It's not where the mouth is. <laughs> um, so we talked about this in our Venom episode. Obviously, we all... Not all. If you know about cool venomous animals, you know that the blue-ringed octopus is quite famous for its... Yes. It's venom. Um, So about 15 years ago, though, a study concluded that actually all octopuses, all cuttlefish, and some squid are venomous. Oh. Right. Interesting. I didn't even know that. Yeah. (laughs) You would think I would have, you'd think they would have come up when I was doing my blue-ringed octopus research. Obviously, there's, this is a, uh, a tale of what degree by species. 
what degree or like what is active in a vertebrate slash human body compared to maybe it's like this is really potent venom but only for an invertebrate our bodies work differently right so very much so yeah so i would like to say yes don't worry the blue ring is still the only one we know of that's dangerous to humans okay that's only one of like 400 but would it shock you to know we've studied very few of them shocking um not no, so I don't knows? find it shocking. Who knows? There could be tons of octopuses that are venomous to us. But like I said, we don't really encounter octopuses a lot because they live so deep down. So it, it's still really, just don't worry about it. It's really an alien environment for us to try to go and do research in. Like we're, we're obviously very slow at progressing that part of science. Very. Yes. Um, yes. So octopus venom is transmitted through saliva from their posterior salivary glands. Um, so at first scientists thought maybe the toxins traveled through water, like the saliva got out into the water and then entered like a crab's gills, for instance. Okay. Um, so they did a bunch of studies where they exposed crabs to saliva containing water and they they were all fine. Um, then they injected crabs with the saliva. Mm. And that did the trick. Shockingly, they died every time within minutes. So clearly the, the saliva is venomous and it gets injected into them by the octopuses beak yeah um that said octopuses will hunt in different ways depending obviously on the type of octopus so some are going to bore a hole in the prey's shells and inject the venom like i'm kind of talking about um larger octopuses might not need to use venom at all because they just kind of pull apart their prey right um smaller octopuses for example the curled octopus (laughs) They use a hunting strategy which involves um, envenomating their prey directly to the eyeball. Oh, the soft point, basically. Yeah, right? So that, you know, puts the toxins directly into the brain and body cavity. And um, there is evidence that way the venom is pre-digesting the tissues that attach the shell to the animal. Okay. So, so that it'll come it apart. Yeah. yeah, there you right. go. Because they're not going to eat the shell, obviously. It's a great strategy. Yeah, exactly. Um, and venom appears to be a very, very old method used by cephalopods. Um, so they did a study analyzing the venom glands of three different species of cephalopod from three different families. Um, and they found that the venom genes appeared very, very early in the cephalopod lineage. Um, and the conclusion basically is that, like we discussed in our venom episode, it's really important that we start studying uh, these compounds, as many of the vitamins as we can, because we gain really valuable medical insights from them. Um, for instance, cold adapted venoms, because obviously octopuses, if they're going to live deep in the ocean, mm-hmm. um, and like a lot of them live in, in cold waters as it is, but the deeper you go, the colder it's going to be, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of octopuses have cold adapted venoms. Um, and, and by studying those, um, it can really help medical research because they're made to withstand much harsher conditions, right? Yeah. Um, and don't ask me exactly how, but apparently it's very important for medical science to know about. I'm going to believe you. Yeah. It makes sense. I just, I, I'm not an expert. Disclaimer again, I'm not, not an expert. Um, okay. Octopus anatomy. So because they are just a blob, they have no real hard parts. Mm-hmm. They can fit anywhere as long as it's not smaller than the, the like uh lar- the only hard part of their body which is their beak okay so any anything is is open fair game 
for an octopus as long as it's <laughs> as long as it's not smaller than their beak, which it's makes crazy. it real tough to contain an octopus, as you've probably heard about all the stories of octopuses escaping in aquariums yeah. and traveling through the pipes, going and eating animals from other exhibits. Yes. And yeah. <laughs> just whatever. Finding Dory. I'm just kidding, that's a cartoon, but hmm. it's a good illustration of what octopuses can do, except for half the movie. But the other half, it's a pretty good illustration of what octopuses could do in real life. <laughs> right. Just that one half, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, so octopuses can also lose an arm and regrow it later. They can. Yeah, they can I do didn't that. Know that. Yeah. All right. Um, unlike lots of invertebrates, octopuses have a closed circulatory system. So their blood stays inside their blood vessels and not just in big cavities. Okay. Um, they have three hearts. They have their, their main heart. That will circulate blood through their body, and they have two uh, branchial or gill hearts that'll pump blood through their through their gills to be oxygen oxygenated. Yeah. Okay. So um, the systemic heart, the main heart, is actually inactive when the octopus is swimming, uh, and that's why it mostly crawls around because it gets tired when it's swimming. Oh, interesting. Okay, but, but remains active as they like walk. I guess is the right word across yeah. the yeah. Then it'll work the floor. Okay. Very interesting. Um, so octopus blood is uh, one of the types of blood that is blue because it's got hemocyanin in it to transport mm-hmm. the oxygen instead of uh, the hemoglobin that we use. So, like that's a that's a copper based compound instead of an iron based compound. Yep. Um, and that makes the blood really viscous, and they need lots of pressure to pump it through their body. So their blood pressure. I mean, let's just be said it's high. The numbers won't mean anything to anybody. No, high numbers. <laughs> um, in cold conditions with low oxygen levels, um, hemocyanin is going to transport oxygen better than hemoglobin. So that's one good reason that... Totally makes sense. For the adaptation. Yeah. Um, and just compared to other animals that use hemocyanin, concentrations of it in their blood are unusually high. Compared, yeah, like I said, compared to other invertebrates, that you, like cephalopods have a high concentration of hemocyanin in their blood. Um, so that makes their circulatory system actually more efficient. So it kind of makes up for their like heart not beating thing. Sure. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, they also absorb additional oxygen through their skin because they have very thin skin. Really. Yes. So when resting, about forty-one percent of their oxygen is absorbed through their skin. So not even through the gills. Right. Correct. Oh, okay. Um, when it's swimming, 33% is absorbed through their skin. When it's resting after a meal, only about 3% of its total oxygen comes in through their skin. I don't know. I don't know why. This is just the numbers that I found. Okay. Yeah. So, speaking of digestion, here's here's how this works. They eat through that underside of their body, that, that beak. Yeah. Uh, goes into the esophagus. And that connects the mouth to the crop, which is used for storing food. And then it goes into the stomach. And this is the slightly interesting part. Uh, unlike our stomachs, which obviously produce digestive enzymes, you know, acids, the octopus's stomach doesn't do that. The liver makes enzymes that then get transported into the stomach to digest the food. Then the food molecules go back to the liver where the nutrients are absorbed and like sent around their body. Hmm. And then what's left goes to the intestines and exits through the anus, which is, that's normal. Yeah. Um, and the anus is located right before the uh, the funnel, the siphon. That's where the, you know, water propulsion system is to swim around. 
Okay. Because they use jet propulsion to swim, yes? Like, they squirt water, basically. Yeah. yeah. Or squirt air into the water. Sure. Yeah. Interesting. So, how do we know that it's a liver, then? Is that liver somehow related to what, like, our liver function is, or? Yeah, it does other liver things. Okay. Yeah. It just also... Uh, well, like it's not like it's not like our liver doesn't also assist in digestion, you know, right? Bile and all those, yeah, things. Okay, it's, it's just, just more involved. Yeah. Okay. Um, another part, technically, of the digestive system is the ink sac. So, in 350 BC, Greek philosopher Aristotle wrote, "The cuttlefish employs its dark liquid for the sake of concealment." Although Aristotle does suppose the octopus and the squid only do it out of fear. Okay. Cuttlefish is being sneaky and the octopuses and squids are scared. Oh, okay. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, and then, of course, if we're going to talk about the ancient Greeks, I thought Pliny. that we should then talk about Pliny the Elder. Okay. Um, Great. Why would we ever not? I don't, yeah, good point. So, you know, 400, 400 years later, Pliny the Elder, <laughs> who I've described as the infinite font of very true facts, um, he wrote, cuttlefish have ink or a black fluid instead of blood. And that oh. that was included in chapter 44, book 28, entitled Fishes Which Have No Blood. And were these the only fishes that have no blood? The well, cuttlefish? <laughs> I was going to say he got a few things wrong there because they're not fish and they also do have blood. Right. Um, so wrong on all accounts. I, I, did, uh, I did just title this next section Lol Pliny because okay. he just has so many... So many inspiring and so true things that he has to say. Um, I, <laughs> I said I didn't want to make too many Beatles references. So I, the one I'm going to make here is that Pliny and the Beatles uh, very much disagree about how near one should get to an octopus. Oh. Because Ringo certainly does seem to want to be near an octopus. So... Pliny thinks that you should not be. Pliny does not agree. And I do think I mentioned some of this in our Pliny episode. This first uh, this first fact. But um, I'm going to read it again because it's funny. Yeah. And I want to. So Pliny basically said octopuses, which he calls polyps, by the way, um, are deadly monsters. So here's the quote. No animal is more savage in causing the death of a man in the water for it struggles with him by coiling round him and draws him under with its feelers and its numerous suckers, when, as often is the case, it happens to make an attack upon a shipwrecked mariner or a child. Hmm. If, however, the animal is turned over, it loses all its power, for when it is thrown upon the back, the arms open of themselves. Um. So okay. just, I, yeah. I don't know, apparently octopuses prey on children and shipwrecked sailors. But they're like uh, a, a like drag a them to the deep. Flipped over turtle, otherwise. Right, they're just broken. Yeah, mm. that's the secret secret hack. Well, now I know. Um, but then I also want to include this story he tells about polyps. Okay. Um, because I find it of questionable veracity. Uh, I will tell it, and you can decide for yourselves if you believe it. So, quote. The other particulars appear still more closely to border upon the marvelous. At Cartia, in the preserves there, a polypus was in the habit of coming from the sea to the pickling tubs that were left open, and devouring the fish laid in salt there. At last, by its repeated thefts and immoderate depredations, it drew upon itself the wrath of the keepers of the works. 
Palisades were placed before them, but these polyp- these the polypus managed to get over by the aid of a tree. And it was only Ooh. caught at last by calling in the assistance of trained dogs, which surrounded it at night as it was returning to its prey, upon which the keepers, awakened by the noise, were struck with alarm at the novelty of the sight presented. First of all, the size of the polypus was enormous beyond all conception. And then it was covered all over with dried brine and exhaled a most dreadful stench. Who could have expected to find a polypus there, or could have recognized it as such under these circumstances? They really thought they were joining battle with some monster, for at one instant it would drive off the dogs by its horrible fumes and laugh at them with the extremities of its feelers, while at another it would strike them with its stronger arms, giving blows with so many clubs as it were. And it was only the great, with the greatest difficulty that it could be dispatched with the aid of a considerable number of three-pronged fish spears. Tridents. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the head of this animal was in size as large as a cask of 15 amphorae and had a beard which could hardly be encircled with both arms, full of knots like those upon a club, and 30 feet in length. The suckers, as large as an urn, resembled a basin in shape while the teeth again were of a corresponding largeness. It remains, or its remains, which were carefully preserved as a curiosity, weighed 700 pounds. Wow. Um, tree climbing? A 700-pound octopus climbing is supported a by a tree. And also has a beard full of knots, like a club, and 30 feet long. And um, well, 700 pounds if you're 30 feet long sounds, you know, right. reasonable, maybe. We've already been clear the giant Pacific octopus... It's the largest one we know of, and I don't think a giant Pacific octopus would be that close to Greece. But to um, trees, yes. Um, I'm going to leave it up to the to the. I was going to say viewers. That's not okay. right. The listeners, listeners here. You can decide the if you viewers. believe if you believe Pliny's cockamamied accounts here. But it's funny. Now that we've completed that, uh, there you go, rabbit hole. I do know that expression. I don't know why it sounded weird to me before. Anyways, back to ink. So each species, or I shouldn't say species, each type of cephalopod makes slightly different colored ink. So so octopuses generally make black ink. Squids, it's kind of a blue-black. Okay. Cuttlefish, it's brown-ish. Okay. Um, so the ink sac lies, well, has an ink gland inside of it, um, but it lies close to the rectum and feeds into the rectum, controlled by a sphincter. Um, and then sometimes when they ink mucus from another organ called the funnel organ is ejected with the water and ink. So it, to create more of a cloudy, like different shapes, basically. Okay. Um, so cephalo- cephalopods use their ink two main ways. The first way is just kind of releasing a bunch of ink in the water. makes a big, large, like really diffuse cloud, like smoke screen. Just so they can get away and the predator can't see them. Um, but the second is releasing what are called pseudomorphs. So that means false bodies. Yeah. Um, which are like smaller clouds of ink with a lot more mucus in them. So it kind of allows them to hold a shape. Right. And just because octopuses are a weird blobby, tenderly shape to begin with, this kind of makes octopus shaped blobs. Sure. Um, so the strategy is to release several of these pseudomorphs, and then the octopus itself changes to a lighter color. The pseudomorphs, you know, being roughly the same kind of volume as the octopus that released it. Mm-hmm. 
So a lot of predators have been observed actually attacking the pseudomorphs mistakenly, and that like right. gives Makes the cephalopod a chance to get away. So yeah, they get all light colored because the ink will be dark colored. Yeah. Um. So it's often called the Blanche inkjet maneuver. Ooh. Ooh. Yes. Fancy. Why Blanche? To like turn pale, turn white. Oh, got what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. I thought maybe it was like named after someone. Oh, fair enough. It could have been. So what is ink? If you well, search the internet, and and I've said it before in this podcast, but don't believe everything you see on the internet, um, you'll find a lot of people saying ink is toxic or poisonous or whatever. Okay. No. All right. Um, I can't say no for sure, but what I can say is that there is no evidence sure. <laughs> of that being the case. Um, the one exception being the blue-ringed octopus, again, which does have tetrodotoxin, the same venom that they bite with, in their ink. Um, but we have no idea the concentrations and effect of that being in their ink, because we haven't studied that yet. Okay, got it. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it also differs species to species. The blue-ringed octopus is a species. Oh, sorry. I thought we were still talking about gen- octopus in general. I miss the blue ring octopus. In general, part. things do differ, yes. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying we do know the blue ring octopus has tetrodotoxin in their ink, but we don't know much else about that. Sure. Um, so experimentally, here is what we do know. Um, some ink has been shown to be unpalatable to fish. So, you know, if they get a mouthful of that, they'll want to go away. Um, it can function as an attractant to predators so that, you know, the cephalopod itself. Can get away. Can get away. Yep. Um, Mucus-rich ink could be a danger that interferes with fish gills, scientists think. Kind of like choke them. Yeah, a little bit. Um, Some cephalopods react adversely to their own inking when they're in a small container. Oh, okay. That's a very beginning stage of research. We don't really know anything more than that. Uh, But um, there has very few species um, have been actually studied for their ink, right? Like, we we don't know much about octopuses, let's just be clear. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, generally, it includes melanin, which, I, you know, that's a giving it a dark color. Yep. Um, enzymes relating to melanin production. Uh, catecholamines, so those are neuro, neurotransmitters, like epinephrine or dopamine or whatever. Um, peptidoglycans, which are a structural polysaccharide. Some some metals and a free free amino acids. That's what's been in the ones that we've studied. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. What does that mean? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like a interesting mix of chemicals there. Yeah. Um. We have not at all studied or characterized the mucus chemically. Hmm. Who knows? It's just not. Maybe. Who knows? Um. You probably do know though that humans. Uh, have processed ink for our own uses if you've ever eaten like a squid ink pasta yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you will be relieved to know, to know that, um, well, A, it's not, not squid. It's usually cuttlefish. Really? <laughs> they just call it squid ink. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you'll be relieved to know it's prepared directly from the ink sac. So there was never any mucus in that ink. Sure. Okay. Um, we have processed cephalopod ink and ink sacs for like antimicrobial immune response enhancings, anti-retroviral, anti-cancer drugs, all those different purposes. We've we've studied them for that a little bit. It's got, like you said, it's got some interesting things in it, so who knows? Um, as well as, you know, for writing. People right. have used it to write with. 
And uh, this is what I thought was very interesting is, is how old is ink or the inking behaviors in general. Um, so the earliest known cephalopod fossil is about 550 million years old. Um, Pretty old. It, yeah. Yes. The earliest known octopus-like fossil has 10 arms and is 330 million years old, which I am super surprised about because it's entirely soft-bodied, as you know. So yeah, it must be hard be to preserved? find a lot of yeah. fossils. Right. You know, there's been other, you know, there, it happens. It's just who knows what didn't get recorded in the fossil record, right? Well, I mean, it's from climbing all those trees and then getting covered in, in amber Pompeii. There, he was climbing a tree when the volcano went off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As we know, everything was instantly preserved. I was just thinking about it, you know, sitting beside a mosquito and, you know, a big block of amber in, in uh, Jurassic Park. Oh, um, that, <laughs> now I'm just imagining. <laughs> just imagining octopuses climbing trees and it's such a funny image. Anyways, um, so that 330 million year old fossil, in the fossil, they saw evidence of a potential ink sac. Okay. Um, whole ink sacs have been seen in some fossils and they resemble the same shape as modern cephalopod ink sacs. Um, unfortunately, obviously, uh, this stuff decomposes and we don't have the chemical signatures really of almost any of these fossilized ink sacs. But in 2012, they found a about 160 million year old cephalopod ink sac that was very well preserved, and they did find some chemical traces of the ink, and it's the same form of melanin as is used in modern cephalopods. Cool. Yeah. So it's evolved a long time ago and hasn't sure. changed much since, we think. Um, octopus senses. That's the next part I want to talk about because it's cool. Yeah. So as far as hearing, um, like mechanoreception, because that's kind of the same thing, right? Detecting sound waves. Waves. Detecting... Yeah. And underwater, it's a little different than in the air. Yeah. So um, they have two organs called statocysts attached to their brain. So like little sac-like structures that have sensitive hairs and a mineralized mass. Same kind of thing as what's in our ears. Um, so that we use that for balance and or body orientation. Right. And that's what octopuses do too. So that's what allows octopuses to sense the orientation of their body and kind of give them information um, to detect angular acceleration and, and things like that. Um, and they don't know if that's what they use to hear sound, but we knew that they, we know they do hear sounds. Um, the common octopus can hear sounds between 400 Hertz and a thousand Hertz. And we know they hear best at 600 Hertz. Um, and that's just one octopus type. We haven't right. not really studied how most octopuses can hear and at what range. Yeah. That's not um, a very wide study, but you know, just thought I'd point out here that deep sea mining is bad because all those deep sea creatures can probably hear that. Right. It'd be pretty percussive, I would assume. It's bad. Or concussive. Yeah. So next, let's move on to chemoreception. So like taste and smell. Um, so the octopus's suction cups have chemoreceptors in them. So they can taste whatever they're touching with their arms. Makes sense. Okay. Octopus arms move... Um, Easily, because the sensors recognize octopus skin, so they won't accidentally attach to themselves ever. Okay. Uh, they have a not great developed proprioceptive sense. So, like, knowing where their arms are, like, if their eyes were closed. 
kind of okay. proprioception, yep. kind of having an idea of where your parts of your body are without seeing them. Within space, yeah. Yeah. So they kind of have to see their arms to know where they are. But like I said, they can't accidentally stick to themselves. So that's a that's a step forward. Um, here's the thing. So instead of being concentrated in their brain, two-thirds of their nerve cells are in their arms. So their arms operate semi-independently of their brains. Got it. Okay. Um, so they've done like really detailed imaging. And they identified that sensory cells with these fine branched endings um, go all the way to the surface of the suckers. And the researchers isolated the cells and then tested their response to a bunch of different stimuli. So like fish extract and pressure and stuff like that. Um, So one class of cells are similar to those that detect touch in like other animals. But the other type of cells, like the ones that respond to fish extract... Um, contain these receptors that they've not seen in any other animal before. Okay. Entirely novel type of receptor. So they called these chemotactile receptors, and they're trying to study how they worked. So they took them and inserted them into human and frog cells in the lab, um, and then exposed them to a bunch of chemical compounds an octopus might encounter. Um, And the only one they reacted to was a class of molecules called insoluble terpenoids. Um... Terpenoids are naturally found in the bodies of a lot of sea creatures, and they're thought to be a defensive compound, um, and especially creatures like the ones octopuses eat. Hmm. Okay. So, they think these are specialized terpenoid detectors that might cue the octopus to, like, quickly grasp their prey item if it's got the terpenoid or whatever, or, you know, withdraw their arm and keep searching or whatever. Right. Um... So, for instance, they did this study in a, in, so in a lab. They put an octopus in a tank, and they explored surfaces without terpenoids with kind of sweeping their arm across a surface. And, like, the instant the arm touched a surface they had put terpenoids on, it would stop quickly, like, tap the spot or, like, immediately move away from it. Like, maybe it's actually, like, oh, no, a defensive, like, a defensive compound. Like, oh, no, I better get away immediately. Sure. Or, like, yeah, start tapping to be, like, is this what I want or should I? Anyways, but they showed a very clear reaction to services with terpenoids versus those without terpenoids. Um, So, yeah, that's cool. Eyesight. They have camera-like eyes, like other cephalopods. Um, They can distinguish the polarization of light. Very cool. Yeah. Um, Color vision varies from species to species. Like some octopuses have it, others don't. There is a hypothesis that species that have only a single photoreceptor protein, so like no color vision, use this process called chromatic aberration to turn like monochromatic vision into color vision. So they don't need to develop different proteins to see colors of light like we do. Um, So... Chromatic aberration happens because octopuses have these dumbbell-shaped pupils. They're kind of like a rectangle. And then at certain types of light, they'll turn into more of a dumbbell, if that makes sense. Like the middle will kind of get squeezed squeezed together together a little bit. Yeah. Um, So they think that the pupils are acting like a prism to scatter white light in all directions. Like basically they break up light and then focus on different parts of it separately. So even though all they see is gray, they know what color it is because of how much the light is bent. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I get it. Kind of. It's it's complicated, but it sounds really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, no animal that we know of does anything like that. This is an octopus no. thing. But even thinking about it, like looking at octopus eyes in, you know, in photos and 
not art, I guess, you know, like photos and National Geographic or other shoots, like they, they have very distinctive eyes and irises and, and pupils like right and other cephalopods have different shaped pupils but they're all very unique like yeah. i think it's a i forget which one's which cuttlefish has i think a w-shaped pupil and like there's like a, huh. like a squiggle okay um i forget which one squid has but they all have a very uniquely shaped pupil very cool um so anyways the result of all this the downsides is that octopuses have a hard time seeing white objects because they reflect all wavelengths of light Blue and yellows are the easiest for them to see. Um, also, the chromatic aberration sacrifices image quality to some extent. Um, but the thing is that octopuses don't rely on their eyesight because they really don't have great eyesight. They're very nearsighted and they can't see much past eight feet, depending on the color. Okay. Um, but they also have no blind spot. They see in all directions. I don't know how. They yeah, just do. Yeah, it, it Maybe appears light, to me light that... goes through their skin. I don't know. Yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. Also, they see with their skin. So that probably is why they have no. <laughs> so so here, here's the thing. All four species of cephalopods, so like the cuttlefish, or well, there I think there was one cuttlefish species, a squid, and two octopuses. But okay. all the ones they studied so far have light sensing compounds in tissues, not including their eyes. So photoreceptors of some sort. Yeah. So they tested some skin samples from the California two-spot octopuses. And it shows that white or blue light signals the chromatophores, which are the color-changing organs, and we'll get there in just a second, to expand, which creates, you know, yellows and browns on the skin. And researchers called this LACE, light-activated chromatophore expansion. So the eye's main light-sensing protein, um, an, a type of opsin, may have gained another function in the skin. I think it's like the same type of protein, like in the skin. Um, that's what the researchers think anyways. They've also discovered that blue-green light prompts the quickest start for the skin color changes. Um, and that light was like 10 nanometers different in wavelength from the one that most strongly stimulates the eyes type of opsin. So they think it's a very similar opsin compound. Uh, and the skin doesn't seem to react at all to red light. Okay, so it's it's sensing certain wavelengths only. Exactly. Um so the experiment shows that the genes, uh, so basically the genes that work in the eyes for the eyes opsin also turn on in the skin opsin, basically. That's the summary of that. I want to talk about how octopuses change colors. I think we're on that part. Sounds yeah. like we're there, yeah. Yeah. So, it's camouflage, we think, is the main purpose, but it's not like that's the only purpose. Um, so biologists were watching the octopus tetricus, also known as the gloomy octopus, <laughs> feeding in Australia, and they saw that they turned much darker, and they stood really tall and spread their arms uh, when they were being aggressive or intimidating, and then when they were interacting with other members of the same species, and, like, the more submissive octopus in the encounter would turn a pale color and get really small and swim away. So the color probably has communication uh, purposes as well. Um, that's the that was the first evidence of that actually happening in the wild. So it might seem obvious, but we have to see it happen, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm gonna do this as well. I want to say as briefly as possible, but I think it's cool. So it might be more complicated than it needs to be. It's cool though. So I'm gonna talk about their skin. So. They've got their skin. 
just underneath that top skin layer, they have thousands of cells called chromatophores. That's one I just mentioned. Um, each chromatophore has a tiny sac filled with uh, a pigment called xanthomatin. Um, and those pigment sacs are surrounded by muscles. So the muscle cells will contract, stretching the pigment sac, which lets more light in, which reflects off the xanthomatin particles. Making them change color, or, or in that case, look darker based on whatever. Yeah. Uh, so then there are three layers of these chromatophores, okay? Okay. Each layer has xanthomatin particles that reflect a different color back. Mm-hmm. So the top layer produces a yellow color, the middle layer a red color, and the bottom layer is a brown color. And by changing the shape of the chromatophores in each layer, they can combine all those three colors to be whatever color they need. Right. Um, each chromatophore is individually controlled with a direct neural signal. And so every chromatophore can operate independently. Wow. 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 Okay. To be clear, we're talking... Tens of thousands to millions, depending on the species of octopus, that can each operate independently. Um, just like how you would flex your muscle. Yeah. Like your brain signals it to flex, and it flexes, except for that we don't have a million muscles. Right. Yeah. Um, so under the chromatophore layers, then there's a layer of cells called iridophores and leucophores. Because we're not done yet. Of course Chromatophores not. aren't the whole story. Um Iridophores are slightly larger than the chromatophores, and they create kind of luminescent and metallic color hues. The iridophores have a protein called reflectin, which... (laughs) Let me guess what that does. What do you think? Reflects. Ooh. Yeah. Creates a mirror-like effect. Yeah. Um, Leucophores are... They have specialized white pigments instead of that xanthomatin, and that scatters or refracts light to control the contrast and brightness of colors. Um, so both the iridophores and the leucophores are expanded and contracted by neurons from the brain, just like the chromatophores. Yeah. So that's still not the whole story. Because when octopuses are camouflaging, and you've probably seen this thing in videos, they also have textural changes of their skin. Yeah. They look like a seaweed or a rock or whatever. Um, so they have machinery in their skin that helps them change the texture. They, there's tiny bumps called papillae that can be relaxed, which will smooth the skin out like a seaweed, or contracted, making it lumpy like a rock. Mm-hmm. Um, those are also controlled independently by neural signals from the brain, and we don't know anything about that process. <laughs> okay. It just like, happens. I don't know. It's super cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just like in summary, here is how the octopus camouflages. It uses its eyes to see the darkness texture and layout of the scene. Its pupils distort light to get a rough idea of color. Then that info is sent from its brain to the, you know, arm brains, the arm neurons um, that add color information. Then the brain decides how to tint, deflect, and scatter the light. The main brain's coordinating everything. Uh, The skin's going to match the the texture of the surroundings. And the octopus moves into, like, the perfect position to blend in better. Like, it'll move a few inches over to be more camouflaged. Um... The craziest part about all of this is just like how, because of how interconnected the brain and the skin are, all those changes I just told you about, which took forever for me to tell you about, that is all happening in under a hundred milliseconds. Wow. It's insane. Yeah. I can't, I can't even contemplate it. 0.1 seconds, faster than blink of an eye. Um, in contrast, chameleons need like uh, up to a minute to change color. Hmm. That's not what cartoons tell me. Nope. 
Um, but, and I did show you this, Everett, so you can you vouch did. for how cool it is. You guys should check out, um, it's on YouTube too. If you just search chromatophores and the keyword insane in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, I saw, um, on an Instagram post, even though I don't have Instagram, so I couldn't watch it again because it makes you try to sign in, um, by live science, live underscore science. Um, so it, they have just like sampled skin from a squid. So just the chromatophore layer of a squid. And they're playing the song Insane in the Brain by the band Cypress Hill. And you can see the chromatophore is contracting and relaxing to the beat because just that sound wave is being misinterpreted um, as the neural signals from the brain because it's like just a pressure wave. Yeah. Um, so you can just see the chromatophores expanding, contracting, changing different colors to the beat of the song. And it's pretty awesome. It is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I can watch that for a long time. Um, also just any octopus video on the internet, you're going to see some cool camouflage stuff. Yes. Um, for instance, there's a, t- a 2019 video of an octopus named Heidi that was changing colors in her sleep, um, which did lead to speculation. Octopuses might change color when they dream. Hmm. But, um, and researchers have identified human-like sleep cycles in octopus octopuses but i did like this one quote from a researcher that was like we cannot i like don't even ask me if color changing is definitely dreaming because he wrote it's bad enough trying to figure out how people dream it's absolutely impossible to figure out how octopuses dream don't even ask me (laughs) yeah we're not ready for that kind of science yet well we can't even say for sure that anyone else dreams you know what i mean that's one of those experiences that's entirely subjective and you can't prove it you can't like you can be like, I had this dream, but in all reality, what you're describing might be completely different than someone else's dreaming, but they wouldn't know it because you can't really, yeah, it, you know what I mean? Like you can't show someone your dream. Anyways, it's crazy. Um, now, octopus reproduction. Yes. Is what we're going to talk about. Okay. Um, even though like everything else, it's really only been studied in a, in a small handful of species. Oh, yeah. Not surprising. Um, it's really unclear how male and females find each other in the ocean. It's a big place. The ocean is a big place. You are right. It appears that males devote most of their time searching for mates. Okay. And females don't. They just get less active and wait. They just wait. live their lives. So probably they're doing something to attract the males with chemical cues. Probably. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, because they're such a solitary animal, they're not really picky about their mates because they're not going to always get many more chances. Yeah, not a lot of opportunity. Um, females don't usually refuse the, the males, but there that doesn't mean that there's no courtship rituals at all. Uh, so, for instance, the male common octopus, Octopus vulgaris, uh, they kind of rear up and they display several of the large suckers on the underside of their tentacles to identify themselves as a male. Um, but only if they're approaching a larger female, because she might eat them if they don't say, right. hey, I'm a male coming to mate. She's just going to try to eat them. Hmm. Um, That's a bad idea. <laughs> so, yeah, they try to get really big and change colors. You're like, hey, I'm just coming to have sex. Don't eat me. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, the male day octopus, uh, Octopus cyanea, he's going to stand tall and kind of tower over his mate, and he's going to get really pale. Um and then when he's approaching the female closely, he starts to, to, to flash, like, black stripes across his body. Um, the algae octopus, Adobopus aculatus. I feel, I feel like we did a podcast about an animal that also had aculatus as a species name, and it's driving me crazy. Mm, I don't I'm going to have to look this up later. Anyways, 
Um, they have one of the most complex sexual behaviors that we know of among octopuses. So the male is going to guard the female from other males, um, basically while staying in a den, like in a tentacle's reach of the female's den. So if another male comes by, there is a fight sometimes to the death. Um, to identify their sex, the male algae octopuses are going to display black and white stripes while in the presence of a female and when they're having um, aggressive encounters with other males. The female just remains camouflaged this whole time. So in this species, you'll get some of like the sneaky mating behaviors. Well, a sneaky male will um, kind of match the body color of the female and try to get close to her that way. Kind of like cuttlefish or some species of cuttlefish. There's there's a few animals that do this. I'm just another female. Don't bother me. And yeah. try to get a mating in before the male realizes what's happening. Um but as for the actual meaning, uh, male and female octopuses look very similar. There is, I mean, females are generally larger than males. Okay. Um, it's not usually as drastic as some of the ones I talked about earlier. But they both have reproductive organs inside their mantle, a kind of mantle layer. But males have one arm that is modified at the end called the hectocotylus, which is a very fancy word that directly translates into sex arm, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like how they often describe it as it's the third arm. And I'm confused by that because third from where? Where do you start? I don't know how you number octopus arms, but True. it's the third arm. Okay. I don't know which direction is the third. I don't know which one's the first, but it's the third arm. Okay. Um, and it's it's going to be shorter than the other arms. Um, so they usually protect it because it's super important and they keep it curled up. And it doesn't have chromatophores like the rest of the body. So it's going to be bright white mm. usually. Got it. There's going to be a curved groove along the length of the arm, which is going to hold spermatophore. So like like rows of sperm, like a package of sperm. Yeah. A spermatophore, yeah. Um, that's called the spermatophore groove, surprisingly. So they're going to extend their hectocotylus into the opening of the female's mantle cavity and voila. Right. Um, and to be clear, this arm isn't like a penis substitute. It's not their penis. They do have a phallus inside their mantle that is what puts the spermatophore into their groove. Okay. So they still have that. They just don't use it the same way other animals do. Um, so the female will then kind of keep that sperm packet in their oviduct area until she wants to fertilize her eggs. So it doesn't have to happen right away. Yeah, she can choose. Yeah. Um, so sounds simple, right? The male octopus just has to transfer their spermatophore to the female, and they've made it, right? Right. Okay. But they also have to be super careful and tactical about this, because many slash most female octopuses try to eat the male after the mating is done. Mm. Even though they said, I'm here for sex, please don't eat me. Yeah, they have to do the sex first. Yeah. Yeah. So here's here's the thing. Um, to avoid getting eaten, the males will try to mate from as much of a distance as they can. Sure. Uh, they will try to approach from behind, you know, often to to have more time to escape. Um, so in some genera, like especially those where the males are much smaller than the females, like the Argonauts I talked about and the blanket octopuses, males actually have a detachable hectocotylus. Mm. So they break, basically break it off after inserting it into the female. Um, that also is a good strategy because it stops another male from getting in there right away. Yeah. Because it's all plugged up. Um, so 
Males typically die within months after mating if they aren't eaten immediately. Sure. And females will watch over their eggs until they hatch and then die shortly after that. Usually. Oh. So, the larger Pacific striped octopus does appear to break these octopus mating rules. Um, it's oddly social. The, the mates will share dens, they'll share meals, they'll mate often, like daily. Uh, they mate mouth to mouth. And the females don't eat the males. Uh, and, and even more unusual, the female can lay multiple clutches of eggs before she dies. So they're uh, quite, quite an exception, maybe. Maybe there's lots of them. (laughs) We we don't know. We know nothing. Um, So let's move on to uh, our octopus gardens slash nurseries, depending on how scientific you want to get here. Um, The traditional knowledge, like I said, is that octopuses are solitary creatures. That's what we've thought for a very long time. They spend their lives themselves, yada, yada, yada. But about a decade ago, um, they were observed brooding and hatching their eggs together. So scientists came upon a group of more than 100 brooding female octopuses at the Dorado Outcrop uh, back in 2013. So the Dorado Outcrop is like a football-sized, football field-sized, sorry, that's different. Mm. I, don't, I don't know if it's a Canadian or American-sized football field, but a football field-sized feature that's uh, off the west coast of Costa Rica, and it's about 3,000 meters deep. Oh, okay, pretty deep, yeah. Yes, that's where they live. So... At the time, scientists didn't see viable embryos there in the eggs, and they went back the next year and didn't see any then, and they were like, well, I don't know. Did the octopuses, like, get something wrong about this? Like, why would there be a hundred then? So they decided to finally go back um, in this past summer in 2023. They returned, and they actually were able to watch octopus babies being born. Cool. Yeah. So they not only confirmed that this is a healthy nursery and functional, but they also discovered another nursery about 30 nautical miles away. Um, and what these two locations have in common is that they're both surrounded by low temperature hydrothermal vents. And they're called low temperature uh, just because they can get much, hydrothermal vents can get much hotter than this, but they do warm the water from like normally the two degrees Celsius. It's, and these places, it's about 12 degrees Celsius. I mean, that's significant. Yeah. So it's not like... They don't warm the water. They do. Yeah. Um, so that doubles the number of octopus nurseries that we know about now. Um, so that kind of challenges our they're not social at all thing. And we're like, maybe there's a lot of these places. Sure. Um, because like, how would we know? We don't go into the deep ocean a lot. Right. Um, so this is also highlighting how important these underwater vents and seeps are to marine life. So the two other nurseries we know of, there's one found off California in 2018 and another discovered this summer, again, 2023, off of the west coast of Canada. Nice. So Very the nurseries good. in Costa Rica, the two we talked about, and California, they all contain um, different species in the genus um, Mus octopus. And uh, the scientists think that the ones they saw at Dorado Outcrop are probably a new species that we haven't recorded yet of Mus octopus. But the one in BC is located offshore of Vancouver Island in Nuchanoth waters which are about 65 kilometers west of the Hesquiet harbor i don't know where that is either i just wanted to include it in case someone knows where that is um so that nursery is different in that it's near what's called a cold seep so it's like a fissure on the ocean floor which bubbles chemicals up like hydrogen sulfide methane and other hydrocarbon rich chemicals um 
So in partnership, I'm going to say these things horribly again, with the Neutralness Tribal Council, the Council of the Haida Nation, the Quatsino, and Pachidat First Nation, and oh my god, Ocean Networks Canada, Fisheries Oceans Canada. There's a bunch of First Nation groups and government groups that all got together to do this exploring because it's this traditional indigenous waters we got to... Yeah. Um, we're luckily able to include everyone together. They found that this nursery was a species called... Okay. Granolidone Boreo Pacifica. Um, and this species is amazing because females brood their eggs for at least four and a half years without ever leaving to eat. They don't eat for four and a half years while they guard their eggs That's until crazy. they're ready to hatch. Okay. I know. It's so cool. It's the longest amount of time any creature in the world guards their eggs, especially without that we know eating. Of. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how it could be longer than that, but um, the California nursery is the largest one ever found. There's up to 20,000 octopuses that live together to brood their eggs. Um, it's about 130 kilometers southwest of Monterey. Um, and mm. it's like 3,200 meters deep on a small extinct volcano called Davidson Seamount. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but lastly, I want to talk about the thing that octopuses are perhaps best known for is their intelligence. Like yeah. we kind of touched on earlier. Um, so the internet might have you believe that octopuses have nine brains. Hmm, they might. And that's not super exactly correct. I don't want to be like a party pooper. But it's it's one brain spread out over like eight arms and the main brain. Um, but a cool fact that is true is it's like donut shaped. Their brain is donut shaped. They have the highest brain to body mass ratio of any invertebrate. And the brain-to-body mass ratio is higher than many vertebrates also. Um, the, the nervous system is really complex because, like I said, it's like two-thirds of it is, is located in their arms, basically. Um, so there's been some amazing research coming out this year, like how some octopuses cope with cold by altering their bodies on the molecular level. So Ooh. when... This one experiment happened where they um, dropped the water temperature inside the tank of a California two-spot octopus. Um, they dropped it by about 10 degrees. And notice that that changed the proteins that the octopus was producing because they were editing large chunks of their own RNA in response. So they basically are doing what scientists describe as astoundingly high levels of molecular editing. Um, mostly in their nervous system, and they think that's what helps their uh, them function when the temperatures are cold. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, so we've known apparently about for a decade that cephalopods are like super great at RNA editing. Oh, so, oh okay. I didn't I, like. I had no idea. Neither did I. That's why I do this podcast. Perfect. Um. So I was about to say I didn't even learn it in school. Let's not talk about the fact that it's been more than a decade since I graduated. Sure. Um, quick refresher course if anyone needs to know. Um, DNA holds the instructions for making proteins, but it relies on messenger RNA or mRNA to bring the instructions from the nucleus in the cell to the proteins that build the proteins. Yeah. Um, and usually the mRNA is going to just copy these instructions exactly, right? But sometimes the mRNA gets edited which then changes how the proteins behave or what the protein is. Um, so 
About 3% of mRNA in humans is capable of being edited. Like, we do this. We do this as well. But only 1% actually gets edited in, in real life. Um, that's, that's where we're at. 1% or less. Um, in octopuses, it's like uh, maybe a third of their mRNAs get edited. So basically to test this, scientists heated or cooled the tank temperatures of octopuses and then just looked to see what proteins they produced in their brains. Um, heat didn't really change much. Okay. And uh, cold octopuses altered like 20,000 mRNA sites. Like I said, about a third of them. And it happens super quickly. In like a few hours, they'll change 20,000 things. That's crazy. Yeah. So, um, for instance, the team found that mRNA editing called, uh, okay, they added one called kinesin, which is a protein that, that takes uh, information down nerve cells. So they edited it to make it slower, basically. And they don't really know why, but they think that because other things slow down in the cold, they have to alter certain things to match that speed or else, or else everything would be thrown off. Yeah, okay. Yeah, something like that. They, again, this is all very new. Yeah. Um. So the thing is, though, as you can imagine, uh, if you're constantly editing instructions, that is dangerous. That is a, a risky... A risky game. Sure. Um, it's, it's it's generally seen as a wise strategy to preserve the genetic instructions as they're written. That's why this whole thing in cephalopods is so crazy and interesting to scientists. Um, so some evidence suggests that all this editing is what makes cephalopods so smart. Um, they also think maybe it's like the cost of it is that it's holding back their DNA evolution. Like they've been unchanged for a very, very long time because they don't need to change their DNA if they're changing their mRNA. But that really, that really means their DNA isn't evolving at the same rate as other animal groups. Right. Cause they're compensating basically. Exactly. But they might be kind of stuck in this loop yeah. where it's not the best strategy, but it's working. So they can't change it. Yeah. Um, so how do they edit that? How do they do it? Um, very complicated. <laughs> I'm going to give a brief overview here. Uh, as a quick summary, remember that there are four DNA bases. There's the, the A, the T, the G, and the C. Adenine, thymine, guanine, cytosine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the A's and the T's match each other and the C and the G's match each other, right? Yeah. Okay. So in RNA, there's no T. You're still, the U is there instead of the T, but it's, other ones are the same. Um, there are lots of ways that different animals edit their RNA. Like I said, it happens in small amounts in other animals. Um, but cephalopods excel at a type of editing called adenosine. And it's adenosine and not adenine just because there's a sugar attached to it now, but let's not worry about that. Adenosine to inosine or A to I editing. So there's an enzyme. It takes a nitrogen and two hydrogens off of the adenosine. And that turns it into inosine. And ribosome, so those are the proteins that build your other proteins, they're going to read inosine as the guanine, as a G. For some reason, I don't know, the structure is similar enough, so they're basically changing an A to a G. Okay. Um, that's the, the quick summary. Um, so the other interesting thing is that most animals, when they do this RNA editing, they do it in the nucleus before it leaves the nucleus. Um, 
Cephalopods also have editing enzymes in the cytoplasm of the cell. So the jelly-like part that all the organelles of the cell are floating around in. So the nucleus is just one of those organelles. So they can do it inside and outside the nucleus, unlike other animals. Right. Okay. Yeah. So um, the current theory is that this RNA editing gives them more flexibility in how they respond to problems. Um, That gives them much more flexibility in their thinking. That lets them learn better. That mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, and uh, we don't really know anything else about it. Right. It's it's super complicated. And like I said, these studies are just coming out this year about like the cold adaptations and what impact they can have on their intelligence or their evolution. So I'm sure there'll be a lot of exciting studies coming out in the future about it as well. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's all I have to say about octopuses. It's quite a bit. Of course it is. Who do you think I am? Someone who is brief and doesn't include everything that's cool? No, I don't think that. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, it's a long one. It's okay. I'm not really sorry. No. I thought I should say that, though, in case anyone was annoyed. Oh, well. But now they know I'm not really sorry, so it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So make sure you join us in two weeks when another new episode will be coming out. We have a email. If you would like to reach out about anything like topic suggestions or, you know, nicely correcting me, I'm, I'm open to that. Or just say hi. That's cool, too. Uh, teach me something for, that's the number, not the word, at gmail.com. Uh, so thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Bye.